It's been nearly 60 days since America went into lockdown. So where are we? About 200,000 new cases each day by the end of May. 200,000 new cases each day by the end of May. That's what they're saying. And yet the Republicans are talking about reopening our economy and the Democrats are blaming Trump for dropping the ball. But nobody talks about science. Where are we? 4,900 meat and poultry processing workers have been infected across 19 states. Half the inmates and staff members tested at Truesdale-Turner Correctional Center in Hartsville, Tennessee, have tested positive for the virus. The virus is barreling through detention centers, homeless shelters, public housing, and any other facility that warehouses humans. This is a lot worse than I could ever have imagined. And while we're lonely and getting lonelier, the reality is this is going to get worse. Here's what the New York Times said on Wednesday. Coronavirus in America now looks like this. More than a month has passed since there was a day with fewer than 1,000 deaths from the virus. Almost every day, at least 25,000 new coronavirus cases are identified, meaning that the total in the United States, which has the highest number of known cases in the world, with more than a million, is expanding by between 2 and 4% daily. Andrew Neumer, an associate professor of public health at the University of California, Irvine, tells the New York Times, if you include New York, it looks like a plateau moving down. When you exclude New York, it's a plateau slowly moving up. Today, science, no opinion, science, not political science, science, facts. The irritable immunologist is joining us from an undisclosed location somewhere in Southern California where he works to defeat the virus. And helping me out once again with the questioning is Henry Hakamaki, who is a researcher studying and specializing in Ebola. Also with us via Zoom and phone are some of the listeners I invited to attend and help out asking some questions. So if you have some questions, please go ahead and raise your hands now or later on in this segment. Irritable. How are you, Irritable? I'm mighty pissed off. I was just muted, and I'm I'm not used to that experience. So I'm I'm irate, enraged, and and ready to engage with questions from your listeners. A month ago, you said that there was talk that some ethnicities are more susceptible to the virus than others. This week, hmm. we're discovering Saudi Arabian doctors are studying why certain cultures defy what we're told is the norm about the virus. Saudi Arabian doctors are discovering that some cultures seem to be immune and, and others more susceptible. Does the virus have a genome? And if so, would it affect humans who possess different types of genes? Is it possible that some cultures are going to get hit worse than others? I guess that was multiple questions, but uh, yes and yes. Uh, it certainly does have a genome. It's comprised exclusively in, in the case of group four viruses, of which this is one of positive sense single-stranded RNA, which makes it um, particularly exciting to handle 
um, because all you need to do to generate virus is to take the genome and get it into a cell somehow. Uh, for the second part, yes, there is certainly some potential for a variability in response depending on, oh, boy, I'm not how to, sure how to explain this exactly, but oh, there is genetic variance in the, in the immune system in particular. And what we refer to that in terms of is usually things like HLA, human leukocytic antigen, um, which is a catch-all term for a number of things. But in, to make, to make that story very short, um, there is genetic variability in the epitopes, what's called epitopes or surfaces that your immune system uses to recognize invading pathogens, uh, particularly on the T cell side. Uh, and what can be observed, detected by those T cells is to some degree determined by genetics. Yes. Okay. And Henry Hakamaki? Would you like to respond to that? Uh, I mean, I can pretty much just reiterate what he said. Um, he's exactly right that there's many cases that we have where um, different populations of people from different ethnic groups or different nationalities have uh, different responses to different diseases. And this goes, it runs the gamut from uh, parasites all the way to viruses, everything in between. So a common one uh, for people to think about, and of course it has a very different mode of action than HLA signatures uh, as Irritable is talking about, but just an example that people might have heard of is malaria and African-American populations being less susceptible to having severe disease because of that, uh, and that's due to them having the, uh, a higher probability of having one of the alleles for sickle cell disease Everybody has two alleles for every gene. And if you have one allele for sickle cell disease, you're not susceptible to malaria. That would be an example of an ethnic group that's not particularly susceptible to a disease. Now, I said totally different way that it would work for a coronavirus, for example, but it's an example that perhaps people are familiar with. Could you... Can you manufacture a virus yet? And if so, would it have markers? Can you tell if a virus has been manufactured in a lab? I mean, it's, it's not always immediately obvious. I guess it depends on what you mean by manufactured. Uh, when this first started, I think in early January, there was a bioinformatics publication out of an Indian group that was that was completely erroneous conclusions and, and anybody who had access to the, the software program and knew how to use it could verify that fact. But they were suggesting that there was, uh, the genome of this virus had been deliberately manipulated and included segments from HIV, which is patently false. Uh, that paper was retracted. It was never published, never even peer reviewed. It was just that bad. Um, so there's, yes, sometimes you can. There's also some potential telltale signatures of what we call passage in, in terms of cell culture, keeping a virus in a different environment from the whole organism that it typically reproduces. And if you keep it in culture systems, which is a, a lot of what I'm doing, although not with this virus directly, not outside of DSL-3, um, you can accrue a certain, oh, signature, but it, that's very difficult to tell. So, no, there's, 
there is no good reason to believe that this virus was, this is not a synthetic organism. That's clear. It's 98% homologous with a bat virus. Uh, the original SARS virus and MERS, both very obvious coronaviruses, both zoonotics from other organisms, probably both originally from bats, MERS, most recently probably hanging out in camels for 23 years before it showed up in people. But uh, if CRISPR, what does CRI- CRISPR does gene splicing, correct? Uh, CRISPR is a, is a broad catch-all term. You are talking to a good person to talk to that about since I've, I've done a fair bit of CRISPR-Cas9 work. Um, usually when people are talking about CRISPR, they're talking about the use of the Cas9 enzyme with specific guides. Um, and that I probably, you wouldn't, you would be less likely to use, let's, let's just say Cas9 targets DNA. Cas9 targets DNA, and this is an RNA virus, so you wouldn't use that CRISPR enzyme if you wanted to mess with this virus. No, there are other modifications of different Cas proteins that you could uh, operate on uh, single-stranded RNA with, but you're probably going to have a be better off just doing it purely biochemically, uh, which would also be feasible. Right. Uh, Henry, uh, join us here on this. Is it conceivable that in the not-too-distant future we will be designing viruses that can attack a certain type of human? Well, there has been conspiracy theories about this exact topic for a long time. Uh, I even have a a book upstairs from, I want to say, the late 80s, where a medical doctor was hypothesizing that Ebola and AIDS were both created in the lab and then the U.S. government was going to use them to genocide people in Africa. Of course, it was a completely not true, not rooted in any sort of fact. But those those theories have been around forever. But on the other hand, we do have examples of where viruses are manipulated in the lab, not necessarily created from scratch, but manipulated. For example, Mm -hmm. uh, during the Cold War, back when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were both working on biological weapon systems for potential future wars, uh, hot wars, that is, they, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union, would be taking viruses and some bacteria in the lab and trying to make them more and more virulent. So they would either spread more easily or kill more people. And one that the Soviets particularly used a, a lot in the lab was smallpox. So they took the smallpox that had been circulating prior to eradication and through selecting for strains that are more virulent and more virulent and pushing it kind of to the nth degree, they ended up with a strain that was incredibly hot. So those kind of things have also been going on for a long time. It's not, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we could have uh, viruses in the, relatively near future that would have a large impact due to human interference. But I, I wouldn't say that we're anywhere near making a virus from scratch. If that right. was what you were asking. Irritable is, are they working on a virus that can kill another virus? I guess that's what a vex kind of, well, that wouldn't be what a vaccine <laughs> is. No. Well, I mean, in order to kill something that's not alive, that's, right. that's a bit of a, no, I mean, viruses are not infectable per se. There's really interesting. My name is David. Um, Why do you keep calling me per se? This is like the fifth time I mean, I've had to tell you my name is David, not per se. Go ahead. 
I, I, I'm just lulled into a false sense of complacency by the, <laughs> by the dulcet soprano tones that, that I'm hearing. And I, right. uh, so there's, there are, there's things like hepatitis delta virus, which is very interesting. And there are some really exotic viruses that have subviral parasites that actually reduce their fitness, which is all very fascinating, but not, I think actually addressing your point, no, you're not going to be generating a virus to target another virus. You could hypothetically generate a virus to target a specific cell type. Um, or yes, in, in the distant future, if you had a really good handle on, oh, some specific antigen that a subset of the population expresses and you wanted to kill all of those people, uh, I suppose hypothetically that might be possible, but that would be totally insane uh, and the ability to contain something like that to your specific target group is probably not feasible reasonably. Okay. The, re- but, uh, the reason I bring this up is because this is really hard and I don't have a background in biology and dynamics of cells yet we're being told to understand this and then make decisions accordingly Meanwhile, you have Mike Pompeo saying that this virus comes to us from a lab in Wuhan and Donald Trump Mm -hmm. saying that blame the Chinese, blame the, 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 the World Health Organization, simplify this for us. Who's the villain in all this? It's the Chinese. They gave it to us. And, and the CIA has been instructed to trace it to a, a lab in Wuhan that the virus either leaked out intentionally or unintentionally. This is weapons of mass destruction that lived inside of Iraq in the run up to that war, right? There's no evidence to suggest that any of that is true. No, no, not, not only that, but I mean, come on, you want to design a bioweapon? You want to make, make one that's not very good at killing people? Come on. You just use the original SARS. The original. It has a much higher fatality rate, much higher. I mean, this is SARS-2, which is what they should have called it. The WHO really should not have had been dancing around and saying, SARS and COD-2 and calling the disease COVID-19. They should have just straight up called it SARS-2 from day one. Maybe there would have been a little bit more appreciation of how serious the circumstance actually is. Um, but no, no, this is a, this is the shittiest bioweapon that's ever been developed as far as I can tell. So it's not, it's not a bioweapon, period. It's 98% homologous to a virus that was isolated out of the ass of a bat in a cave in Hunan. Right. Um, right. So there's, you know, and, and as Henry real, pointed out, as Henry pointed out, that the Russians were able to weaponize smallpox during the fifties to make a more ravenous smallpox. I would assume they could easily make a more ravenous SARS than uh, than what we've got now. That's what you're saying. If, if this was a serious bioweapon, you would expect extremely high rates of mortality and morbidity. Also, this would be a, it would be a little bit crazy to attempt to weaponize respiratory viruses because containment and vaccines are difficult. Let's put it that way. Henry? I'll speak. Yeah, go ahead. So I, what I will say is that you, you're absolutely right that we're hearing a lot of 
the sycophants in Washington, D.C., blaming the Chinese and the World Health Organization for all of the world's problems. What, what it appears is that there is no criminal activity from China. They didn't intentionally release it from a lab. The real criminal activity, if there is any, is the horrendously mismanaged situation in the United States. If, if there was any criminal activity, it would be the mismanagement by the sycophants that are supposed to be keeping us safe and are failing absolutely miserably. Okay, this is for another conversation. I really want to stick with the science. It's very easy to sure. go down the path that I'm familiar with, which is blame Trump, blame the Democrats, blame China, the WTO. Sure, sure. Is fa- but I, I really want to use this opportunity to learn the science. There is some good news that seems to be coming out this week. China says no. It, it may no irritable, no good news. Uh, I, I would say the, probably the, the headline over the last day or so was a, a preprint publication regarding mm-hmm. a single amino acid substitution in the receptor binding domain of this I'll particular ask you bad about boy. Just a second. Okay. okay. I, 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 uh, let's get to that. That sounds very uh, enticing, even though I have no idea what you're talking mm-hmm. about. But a oh, it's t- delicious. Okay. A team of science. It's refreshing, science. too. It's refreshing. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's no longer just for breakfast, as I understand it. A, no, a, a, every a, meal. A, a team of scientists have developed a fairly quick, cheap test to diagnose the coronavirus. It's almost like a pregnancy test, and it only costs six bucks. That's good news because it's testing. To, you said on Tuesday show, contact tracing, mm. contact tracing, contact tracing. But you can't Indeed. trace without tests. Does this uh, yes. cheap test show promise? Sure. I mean, cheaper the better, as long as it's highly specific and doesn't have a substantial rate of, of false positives. Uh, ideally, not a substantial rate of false negatives either. Yeah. I mean, there's look. There's there's a number of different schemes that have been proposed. The the issue is actually implementing them. You would need some kind of central authoritative presence to implement all of these things. And instead we have a delusional clown with orange makeup on babbling at the mouth. Uh, What about Operation Warp Speed? He unveiled Operation Warp Speed. We're going to have a vaccine tomorrow, according to Donald Trump. Right. Yes. Well, no, I, I, I thought from the sound of it, that would be associated with Space Force. Okay. But, uh, all right. So more, more good news. And then we'll get to that complicated. Yeah. What what you were, that paper you sent me that I really thought was passive aggressive. I I didn't understand a single word. I thought, oh, he's just putting me in my place. Harvard. No, that was, that was actually mainly for, for Henry. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I, I realized how stupid I am when I try to pretend to read that. Even my lips wouldn't move while I was reading it. That's how dumb I am and how hard that was. Even my lips couldn't move to read that one. Researchers at two Harvard hospitals. What the boys down on the corner say? I'm sorry, what did you say? Well, I was was just making, uh, uh, I was casting aspersions that that's not what the boys down at the corner say about how you use your lips, but I mean. Okay. I'm not doing that now during the pandemic, so there's no need to bring it up. Okay. And and this is how I support the show. 
I you use did good work. I'm, I was complimenting you. I was Thank complimenting you. you. Okay. Not. All right. I use my lips over there so I can use my lips over here. And I don't think you need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Irritable. To uh, I want to go back to something that Henry Hakamaki touched on in, in, in gene therapy to develop a coronavirus vaccine. So I said, can they can they splice a virus's genes to make it kill a bad a bad virus? Can there be a good virus that goes in and kills a bad virus like, you know, Tron, uh, you know, make a great movie like Tron? They're, Ooh, they, they, deep cuts. Deep cuts. That's uh, what. Uh, <laughs> right down to the corner. Yeah, we got what, no, that. no. That's what Sal Minio said when he was uh, being. Uh, okay. Uh, gene therapy to develop a coronavirus vaccine. So, how would that work? How would you manipulate? Would Would you use a well, it's RNA, so you can't use CRISPR to do this? You wouldn't. You would probably just go ahead and use restriction enzymes. You wouldn't. I, you're saying that I would do it because I'm a moron. The, the tone of voice was you would go ahead and use restriction enzymes because you're a moron. But <laughs> the cognoscente, like me and Henry, we would use. What would you use? Sure, I, I would probably go ahead and use restriction enzymes. It depends on what you mean. So in terms of direct killing of another virus, no, not happening. But uh, in terms of engineering a less virulent virus, that, that's effectively what's being done with a number of the vaccine trials. They're using a carrier virus that isn't fatal and introducing in part of SARS-2, COVID-19, the COVID-19 causing virus, in order to fool your immune system into thinking that it's been infected with COVID-19, the COVID-19 virus, and therefore will mount an immune response appropriate to that virus when it is later uh, presented with that virus. Uh, at least that's the idea. So yeah, the both the Oxford and the Sinovac uh, principal trials right now are using an adenovirus, another respiratory virus, an unenveloped virus uh, that they've altered to make it more or less not pathogenic, and then they're introducing part, mainly the spike in, in both of these cases, of SARS-CoV-2 so that your immune system sees that spike protein and develops a memory immune response to combat it the next time around. Okay, Henry, what kind of vaccine, Henry, because you touched on this Tuesday, what kind of vaccine would that be called? You were saying that there are different types of vaccine, or would it, in fact, be a vaccine? Sure. Before I answer that, David, I am just going to um, clarify what restriction enzymes are for Thank people you. that Thank are you. unaware. I know, but we, we have to, you know, for the listeners, yeah. we, but I you want me to tell them what restriction enzymes are. Go you know ahead. what? You go ahead. You're a guest. Okay, you go I, ahead. I'll get it. I'll get it. Okay. Uh, so restriction enzymes are enzymes that are typically produced by bacteria and they have, so as we described, was it a Friday meeting or was it recorded? I think it was one of the Friday meetings, but your genetic sequence is just essentially a bunch of letters one after another, or we interpret them as letters. Restriction enzymes are enzymes that cut at specific sequences of letters. So it'll recognize the sequence of those letters and it'll cut in the same spot every time. So what 
irritable is saying is that we could take restriction enzymes that are uh, specific for the sequence of coronavirus potentially and use it to cut the RNA of the coronavirus. So that's to answer that um, or to clarify that point. In regards to the vaccines, as I um, spoke about last time. Yeah, in answering that question, Henry, Mm -hmm. tell me how many different types of vaccines existed in 1950. And thanks to the unraveling of the genome and the exploration of genes, how many different types of vaccines are there today? Oh, God. Uh, So uh, there's a lot of different kinds of vaccines today. The first two kinds of vaccines that we had were live attenuated and inactivated. Okay, so that's like 1950s era vaccines. Mm. Okay, so start with that. This is good. Like live attenuated and what is the other kind? Inactivated. Inactivated. Mm -hmm. So what is an activated vaccine? An inactivated vaccine is where they take, let's say we're uh, going to be vaccinating for a virus. They take the virus and they kill it in a way where the structure is still more or less maintained. And then they inject the dead virus into your system. Your body recognizes the dead virus. It doesn't recognize it as dead, but it recognizes it. And then it is able to generate memory against that antibodies for the next time. And then it will produce antibodies for subsequent infections. And how well, this is an unfair question to ask you. This is an unfair question to ask you, Henry, but uh, how much money do you have in your pocket right now? No, uh, this is it. But like how I long think I have a nickel in my pocket. Okay. <laughs> how long did they how long have they been doing that? In, like they didn't invent that in the 50s. So did they do that for in the 19th century? Did they know enough to do that? So the first. OK, so we've had vaccinations of one sort or another for a really, really long time. Um, when we want to nail down when a specific type of vaccine came out, it's a little bit harder to nail it down. Okay, exactly. Okay, so let's go to so an attenuated vaccine. What is that? Sure, an attenuated vaccine is instead of killing the the virus. Let's say again that we're doing it for a virus they're going to weaken it in some way. Let's say they just leave it on the counter for a couple of days to the point where the virus is almost dead, but not completely dead. Then they stick it into you. The virus is weakened. So you don't get, you either don't get sick or you develop just very mild symptoms because the virus is not particularly potent at that point. And what happens then is your body develops a more robust response against it because it's actually a a virus that still has some, physiological function rather than just a dead bit of a virus. Irritable, is that the kind, before we get to the new types of vaccines, I would assume the attenuated virus is something you would use to fight a more aggressive virus, right? The attenuated vaccine. You'll get get higher efficacy. So um, a, a good... 
oh, demonstration of this would be the Salk polio vaccine versus Alfred Sabin's polio vaccine. The latter was alive, attenuated, and was had a higher efficiency in terms of preventing uh, uh, illness from subsequent exposure to polio, but also had a potential issue of causing polio itself in immunosuppressed people. Okay, so I'm going to stop uh, where, you for where? one second. I'm going to stop you for one second, mm-hmm. Irritable, because this is great for a cocktail party. This is great information to know the difference between the two types of polio vaccines. I need to know this. Okay, this is really good. This is if we get anything out of today's segment, we can show up at at a cocktail party and explain to people the difference between the Sabin vaccine and, and the Salk vaccine. I think one was oral. The other was anal. We'll get to that. Okay, which which vaccine came first? Who came first? Uh, Salk. Salk came Salk. first. Go ahead. What? Just when it started to get good, we're losing him. Salk came first. Yes, that was an inactivated virus. It was an inactivated virus. And, and, and teaching is repetition. So tell us again what that inactivated virus vaccine means. Are you there, Irritable? Uh, yeah, still here. Am I uh, going in and out? You're going in and out, just like uh, oh, the good. guys down on the corner were going in and out when um, I was. Do you want to call back? Why Why is the sound bad? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, is, this, is it still dropping up? No, no. Go ahead. You're good. Okay. Uh, yeah, so... He is still dropping out. He's dropping out. So here's what here's what here's what we're gonna call back. I can fill in for a little bit. Okay, Henry's gonna fill in, but you'll answer the question. Can you call back? Irritable? Yeah, sure. Thank you. This is great. This is great. You know, it's interesting. I'm really glad that I asked that question about the polio vaccines because Mm -hmm. I think that's the touchstone upon which we unlock an understanding of vaccines for for the layman. I think we all know what the polio vaccines were and that Salk and Sabin donated the, the, the rights to the United States government. Yes, I was just about to bring up that point because that's something that was famous at one point, but a lot of people these days don't remember is that they could have made millions and millions patenting the polio vaccines and they decided for the betterment of humanity to just make them free for for public use essentially and uh, yeah ended up saving millions and millions of lives in the process and even many more millions from permanent disability and they hated each other <laughs> that that um yeah, they had a definitely an interesting relationship between the two. Have you read about it at all? David? No, I, I met the guy who unraveled the human genome in 2000. I forgot his name. He was on a comedy show, believe it or not, that I was working on. And we were hanging out, and he told me that uh, Salk and Sabin hated each other, and Watson and Crick hated each other. Did oh, you? yeah. Uh, you yeah, knew yeah, that? I, yeah, I did know that. And one of them... Ooh, what one was it? One of them is a absolute right wing nut. Yeah, yeah, he's a racist right wing. Yeah, what one was it? God, 
I don't know. So like, I should remember that off the top of my head. And I don't, I have a feeling I know what one it is, but I don't want to slander the wrong one. I think one. it's Watson, I presume. Let me just check very quickly. Okay, while you're checking I, I really that, don't want to give the wrong name for... Yeah, by, for, for... Yeah, it for, was Watson as... Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he... Uh, Watson and Crick uh, unraveled DNA. They came... They discovered DNA. With Rosalind Franklin, let's not forget. A woman. A woman who did not get any of the credit for the discovery. She actually did most of the legwork for... Um, the research that ended up getting us the structure of DNA. She was their um, x-ray crystallographer. She would be like the RNA for the DNA. She'd be like the, doesn't the RNA do the legwork for the DNA? Well, legwork, I I don't know if I would want to use that term, David, but the point is, is that it would be like, uh, you know, the person that builds the car that wins the race doesn't get any of the credits. The person that drives past the finish line. Okay. Thank God. We, we, I think we did a pretty good job filling time waiting for, uh, irritable to join us. You're back. Irritable. Yeah. If you're going to do bleach, man, intravenous, intravenous. <laughs> Well, like you guys, I like this. We were talking about how Watson and Crick hated each other and Saban and Salk hated each other. And, you know, Lennon and McCartney hated each other. And I think we're onto something. I think Irritable and Henry Hakamaki can learn to hate each other. I think we can turn this in to such a great popular segment that within six months, the two of you will despise one another. Okay. Let's go back to the uh, Henry. <laughs> All we have to do, we, we can turn this into a show. We just have to get two talking heads fighting with. I mean, wouldn't it be entertaining? I could sell this to CNN. Watson and Crick arguing, right? Saban and Salk arguing over science. That's how you teach just by people fighting with one another. And they would have been big celebrities at the time. Imagine the yes. viewership that you would have gotten. <laughs> yeah. Celebrity cage match, Watson and Crick. You, what well, I've learned is you my need... My money's on Crick. <laughs> you need... Uh, you can only teach through conflict. If people aren't screaming at one another, no knowledge is being... Shut up, that's a bunch of bullshit. Thank you. Okay, go let's ahead. go back to the original question, which is... Sabin and Salk, uh, and the two vaccines and how they differed from one another. Okay, I, I feel like Henry probably covered this pretty well. No, no, no we were gossiping. No, no, we were gossiping. Seriously, okay. we, were, we were gossiping about personalities. Waiting for you. Yeah, so, okay, so we were talking about the difference between an inactivated and a live attenuated virus. And that, and that's a good example of that. Uh, Jonas Salk, I think it was mid fifties, uh, came up with it. Uh, it, they were both oral, both the Salk and Sabin vaccines, but they differed in terms of the Salk vaccine was inactivated. It could not infect people who it was given to. It was not capable of getting into cells of its own accord. It could not reproduce inside of cells. It, it was dead, but it still maintained all of its proteins, all of the things that the immune system is looking for, the, what, I, what I call the epitopes or 
maybe easier to think about in terms of surfaces. The cells of the immune system don't have eyes, but they can recognize surfaces, and we'll, we'll call them epitopes. And so those are maintained in an inactivated virus. The virus is still there. It's been chemically treated typically with something called formalin. In contrast, a live attenuated virus has been grown, usually in cell culture, under really weird chemical conditions. And so it's become adapted to a different circumstance. And that would be Sabin. That would be Sabin? Exactly. And that came second. Yes, the saving vaccine came second. The advantage, as, as Henry mentioned, what is with an inactivated virus is that the virus is still causing an infection. It may be asymptomatic. It may be very mild. Attenuated. Yes, yes, live attenuated, excuse me. Um, but, uh, yes. So, so functionally, it's a reproducing inside of cells, which is sort of half of of the bit for a virus in order for the immune system to really effectively combat with a really high rate uh, a second infection with something it's best if that infection is a full infection rather than just exposure to proteins so while the salt vaccine was way better than nothing and wasn't activated and the same vaccine was was much more active the virus is still alive it was just heavily adapted to reproducing in cells that were under quite different conditions from the cells in your body. And so it's really crappy at reproducing inside of normal human cells, the Sabin virus, but it could still do so. And that's critical for vaccine design, particularly for viruses, if you want very high efficiency, is to have an actual low-level infection with something uh, that causes proteins to be produced inside of cells of your body because half of the coin in terms of antiviral response is killing cells that have virus actively reproducing inside of them. Okay, uh, and which the, vaccine uh, Which vaccine do we use now? For what? Oh, for yeah. polio. Yeah. Are you drinking bleach? Are you drinking bleach? No, I told you bleach intravenous. Oh, sorry. dumbass! I'm sorry. Jesus Christ! No, I'm I'm taking shots of hydroxychloroquine, <laughs> a little bit of zithromycin laced in there. I mean, I don't give a shit about my QT interval. I mean, god <laughs> damn it! It might be cardiotoxic. In fact, it is cardiotoxic, but it's delicious. Dude. All right, all right. Which delicious, re- refreshing, with no nasty Hello, aftertaste? Is that, right? No nasty aftertaste. Exactly right. Do you put fluoride in it? Have you put fluoride in it? Of course. Okay. Of course. Got to keep these chompers, these chompers really sharp. It's critically important. Okay. Which vaccine are we using now to combat polio? You know, I believe, uh, boy, I'm actually not sure whose formulation is used. It is an attenuated vaccine these days. I'm not sure if it's... Oh, I'm actually not sure in terms of what's currently deployed, but I, I believe the overwhelming majority of it is attenuated, so it would be based on something like Sabin's initial vaccine. I think Henry has do you, the... Do you Henry, do you happen to yeah, know? Yeah, so they actually... The World Health Organization uses both. It more or less depends on where in the world they're giving it. In the U.S., uh, we get sure. it as part of our Tdap, so it's uh, actually yep. the inactivated form in that because it's being given intravenously anyway, mm-hmm. which is how you would administer the inactivated one. The attenuated one is the one that you take orally, and they haven't been giving that in the U.S. for a long time. But in other parts of the world where uh, 
maybe injection is more difficult to carry out or they're doing mass vaccination where they're just going down rows of kids and, and vaccinating, they would be using the attenuated one. Okay. Uh, we're we're going to open this up now to the attendees. We've invited some of the listeners to sit in on this, and it's been a tremendous boon so to the show. Yes, Henry. Do you want me to save the, the bad news questions for Irritable for next time? Then? No, no, we have time. I, I just, okay. uh, just want to ask one final question, and then you ask a bad news question. But uh, two major pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson and Moderna, have joined forces, and they are promising a billion doses of an undeveloped vaccine by the end of 2021. By the end of 2021, their big, bold promise is a vaccine by the end of 2021. Not the end of 2020, the end of 2021. Now, I'm not a scientist, but that seems like it's more than a year away. Okay, two questions I like Henry to pile in, chime in here. A, A, is that ambitious? Is that doable? Can they come up with a billion doses of a vaccine by the end of 2021? And without a vaccine between now and 2021, what is herd immunity going to look like? The two of you, please go at it. Hopefully you'll argue and fight, so it'll be entertaining. Well, I mean, in reverse order, I, I think uh, a shit show for the second for the second question. Uh, I mean, for Moderna, wasn't polio were, a shit show? It, it seems to me polio was the shit show. <laughs> Certainly, anything with a fecal oral route, yeah, you could call it a shit show. I think. Uh, I, I mean, the issue with Moderna. Is Specifically, yes, because they're fundamentally an mRNA vaccine house. That's what they're trying to do. And mRNA is, is very easy to produce. It's very easy to lyophilize and it's very easy to do so in under sterile circumstances. A more interesting question is whether that vaccine will actually work. Uh, the track record in terms of mRNA vaccines has not been good so far, despite huge sums of money being poured at Moderna in particular for, I think, at least 10 years. Okay. Um, so uh, typically when you, when you're doing an mRNA vaccine, you're, you're, you're keeping RNA in a, a, let's say a little fat ball, a lipid particle, uh, and you're injecting that usually, uh, at least with the mRNA vaccines I'm familiar with. And 80% of that just ends up with your liver. Uh, so if you want to treat something that's infecting your liver, probably a pretty good way to go about it. But in terms of actual effective RNA vaccines, currently deployed for viruses i'm not sure there are any for human viruses at least nothing that's been approved by the fda so you're saying there's never been an rna vaccine i mean i believe there have been for pigs there they've certainly shown promise clinically oh so hang on i just did a joke so hang on let me hang on i have a joke hang on for one second folks hang on let me repeat that joke. <clears throat> so Mnuchin's safe. See, because pigs. Okay, so they haven't come up with a, a vaccine for an RNA virus, you're saying? 
No, it's a vaccine that is using RNA. So that the reason I bring this up is because that is Moderna. Moderna's entire gig has been the development of RNA-based vaccines. And so what that's trying to do is to take a oh, part of the virus's genome, which is RNA. Instead of putting it in a viral particle, you put it in oh, a, a little ball of fat. Let's put it that way. Well, yes. And you're trying to get that... Yes, you're trying to get that little ball of fat. Uh, you know, Steve Mnuchin jokes are fine here as well. Um, and get that into cells in the body. And once that's in there, that RNA will be translated into protein so you can express proteins inside of cells without actually having to infect them properly. Uh, the issue is that there's not a lot of good examples of this vaccine technology that have been approved so far. They certainly could be. They claim to have worked out a lot of the issues associated with all of it ending up in your liver and just getting metabolized. Uh, but I don't believe those have been deployed in, in any first world country, to my knowledge. Do you know, Henry? Uh, I'm not aware of any that have been, no. So, I mean, that's, that's who Moderna So how is, so. ambitious is it for Johnson & Johnson and Moderna to say by the end of 2021 they're going to have a vaccine and a billion doses of it? How reasonable I mean, is they that? Can produce a, they can produce a billion doses worth of an RNA vaccine. Whether that RNA vaccine will work worth a shit is a different question. Um, I mean, traditional vaccine production is going to be a bit slower. And any time that you need to grow oh, anything related to a virus can be a big pain. So synthesizing RNA is quite easily done these days. Right. So there's a lot of potential for this type of vaccine to work. It just hasn't been demonstrated to have worked in any way that's been clinically approved almost anywhere that I'm aware of. Okay, I want to go to the I want to go to the the questions because they've been patiently sitting by. This has been far far better than I. I mean, just that just the segment on the polio vaccines. I cannot wait to go to a super spreader party with young people. That's what they call them, super spreader parties, working on the herd immunity. I'm going to go to a cocktail party with the super spreaders and tell them about the, the polio vaccine. Go ahead, Henry. Just uh, to address one quick thing before we get to the listener questions. Uh, most of the vaccines that are being tested right now for efficacy are not mRNA vaccines. So they're targeting an MR, uh, uh, RNA virus, but they're not mRNA-based vaccines, um, which the reason I bring this up is because you asked if have we had vaccines that have worked against RNA viruses before. Yes, we have, um, but they haven't been mRNA vaccines. There, there's a difference. The but I believe they were, were for pigs. Is that correct? The mRNA vaccines that have worked were for pigs, but again, which reminds me of my the, Steve Mnuchin joke, right? Uh, but the point is, is that there's a difference between an mRNA vaccine, which the mRNA is the vaccine, versus treating an RNA virus. So most of the vaccines that are being developed right now are what we call recombinant vaccines, where they take little bits of our RNA virus, COVID nineteen, SARS two virus, and mounting that little piece of that onto a different virus so that the body thinks it's SARS-2, COVID, but it's really not. It's just a little piece of that. Okay, last question, and this is important. 27 states in America are loosening social distancing restrictions within the next week. 
20 of those states, only, well, 20 meet the benchmarks that the COVID-19 task force recommends. So we're at best a year and a half away from a vaccine. And they say that when you ease the lockdown, some of the models show that 3,000 people will be dead in Georgia by the end of August. 10,000 will be dead in New York by the end of August. 10,000 dead in New Jersey, 7,000 dead in Pennsylvania, 7,000 dead in Illinois. Goes on and on. They're saying that by easing the, the, the restrictions, we will see 100,000 additional deaths by August 4th with no vaccine. So, you know, I said on this show, America gets lucky, maybe it won't be so bad. Yeah. I was wrong. I mean, this is like we're going to have to get used to this the same way we get used to car accidents and gun deaths and the flu and a Vietnam War every year combined. Correct? Is that fair? Sure, man. If you if you want to put it that way, I mean it's it's a colossal crap show because of our our absolutely inept response. And that is anybody leveling with the American people? Where do you is any politician leveling? I'm at like Cuomo, Trump, is Fauci, is anybody telling us the truth about what we need to get to herd immunity? Without a vaccine, I read. Ninety percent of Americans will have this within by Christmas. Henry. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind, and this is something that we talked about last time and I talked about on the previous Friday Zoom meeting, is that we don't even know if it'll be possible to get to herd immunity because we don't know how long we're going to be able to maintain the neutralizing antibodies for. We don't know how long we're going to be able to maintain long term memory against this virus for. So even if you're infected, it's quite possible if it's like other coronaviruses that we could be susceptible again in five months. So you could be infected by this virus more than once in the same year. Even SARS, SARS-1, that is, uh, its, its memory, our body's memory against that from survivors, only lasted two to three years. Well, we so, talked about booster shots, but 70, right. so in, order, in order to get to herd immunity, as I understand it, 70% of a population has to either be vaccinated or infected. Is that correct? Depending on the disease, that, that, right. Yeah, that's probably a good ballpark, but I, I think it's really critical to underline the point Henry was making there is in order to have effective herd immunity for coronaviruses, you need everyone to have caught it and generated an effective immune response roughly in the same time window. Otherwise, you're just going to have rolling infections where people who were previously exposed three years ago are now catching it again. And there's some potential that catching it a second time might be really nasty, too, because of mm. specific propensities that this type of virus engages in. I would frankly doubt that, but okay. it's certainly possible. What are the possibilities five years from now? Because we always spin disasters. 
and you know we manipulate numbers. You're doing a heck of a job, Feldman. Thank you. What is it? What are the five years from now? I can hear somebody saying, "You know, it wasn't really that bad," and it, it turns out that more people had it than knew they had it, and it really does. It's just like a bad flu, like any bad flu, and you know. It, it, but we don't see that right now. I mean, bodies are piling up. I mean, they can't process them quick. I mean, we, we we certainly were seeing that for quite a while, right? I mean, we had we had a substantial fraction of of the right wing media indoctrination echo chamber all more or less parroting. I believe Limbaugh was calling it just a cold. Right. I mean, right. So and his lung cancer is just moment, his lung cancer is just a hemorrhoid. <laughs> All right. right. Let's uh, let's take some questions. I I've been by the way, uh thank you for this and thank you to all the attendees who have you're brilliant. Let's go to Justin. Hello Justin. Let me move you up to uh so we can see you. Hey Justin, how are you? You're coming to us from San Francisco, I believe. Justin, are you there? You have to unmute yourself. Yes. Hey, Justin. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So um, I've been looking at, and thank you, you, you've answered some of my questions already, but I've been looking at this uh, from the perspective of some of uh, these companies that have come out and talked about uh, developing a vaccine. And uh, Irritable, you mentioned uh, Moderna, which you know, has gotten a lot of attention. We should you know. mention Justin is a an investigator for FINRA. You investigate stockbrokers and companies. Correct. And, um, you know, there's, there's a task force that's been put together by the SEC and FINRA and others to um, investigate companies that may be making questionable claims, um, and there's already been some stocks that have been halted on the exchanges uh, as a result of that. My my interest here is, is some of these companies that have come out and talked about you know the, their efforts to develop vaccines. Um, several of them are companies that uh, have going concern clauses in their financial statements, meaning that they have less than a year's worth of cash before they run out of money unless they get financing. Um, a lot of these companies had stocks that were trading, you know, below a dollar or around a dollar in January. And then they make these announcements about uh, having a, a COVID-19 vaccine in development and their stock skyrockets, you know, 400, 500%. Um, so, you can imagine why, you know, I, I'm skeptical about some of these companies, although, you know, some of them also uh, are included in um, uh, things like the World Health Organization's uh, draft landscape for COVID-19 candidate vaccines. So I guess what I'm hoping to get is, is to just uh, maybe throw out, you know, a few names. If you're familiar with them, we can talk about it. If not, you know, and move on, but I, I'm interested in getting a sense of which of these companies who've announced uh, vaccines that they have in development are legitimate, and which of them are maybe you know 
talking about stuff that is very speculative or, or doubtful. It, it sounds like you're looking for, well, you're not looking for inside information, but I was reading that Japan, Abe, the prime minister, is pushing, I believe, a treatment for COVID-19 that's manufactured by Fuji Film, and they have TV stars endorsing it on television, and it's apparently not that effective, but it's in the best interest of Japan to push that into the marketplace. Uh, I think I muted Irritable because, yes, sorry, Irritable, I muted you. I apologize. Just so I can finish the, the, the question, or actually pose a question, um, you know, some examples, uh, there's, there's like a, um, uh, a company here in the Bay Area called Geovax that is, you know, they make a vaccine platform. They claim to have, at this point, three vaccine candidates uh, in development. Um, you know, they were running out of money as recently as, you know, the end of 2019. Uh, there's a company called Vaxart that is also in the Bay Area, claims to make a oral recombinant vaccine uh, administered by tablet. Um, Innovio, uh, which is highly dependent on outside financing, has um, a vaccine, which is a intradermal vaccine, you know, the kind that creates a bubble on your skin. Like a patch. Um, I, I don't think that any of these... I don't think that any of these are using uh, the RNA approach that Moderna okay. is using. Yeah, we're getting a little but deep. We're getting a little deep into this, so let, let's allow the uh, Henry and Irritable to respond to this. Great question, though. I mean, I'm not intimately familiar with the various platforms that the vaccine startups have going. I. I'd say that's a really tricky business to be in because if it fails, you're hosed. This is the amount of re the resource investment versus payout rate for vaccines typically hasn't been that great because they tend, they tend to be fairly heavily regulated both nationally and worldwide. So I, unfortunately, I don't think I have any good insight in, in terms of the financial status of those companies. I had heard of Geovax. I think they were claiming they had insight on an HIV vaccine hasn't shown up yet. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. They, Henry, do you want to respond to that? And then we have two more questions. No, I, I pretty much just have the same thing to say as irritable that I, I'm not familiar with the specific vaccine candidates that they're putting out. But what I will say is that it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's relatively easy to come up with a plan of how you're going to make a vaccine, it's infinitely harder to make an effective vaccine based on that plan. So it's really hard to speak towards which of these plans is going to actually work, if any of them. Right, right. They're discovering that hypertension medications, you know, if you're you, a comorbidity is hypertension. So if you but now they're discovering that if you take the hypertension medications, it worsens the COVID-19 they're discovering that tuberculosis. Uh, a, a maybe. Okay, maybe. That's the whole point. Maybe I, I, I would. I would say maybe to both of those. Actually, uh, the, the critical bit, I think, 
that isn't broadly understood about ACE2 in particular is that ACE2 has a critical role in terms of preventing really nasty tissue damage. Um, what is ACE2? What is ACE2? What is ACE2? So it's a, this is the, we'll call it the receptor. It, it's the bit that sticks out on the surface of the cells okay. that SARS-CoV-2 is binding to. It's actually an enzyme. It's a transmembrane protein in the external, the ectodomain, the external part uh, is critical in terms of a broader system of, oh, let's say <laughs> hormonal and blood pressure regulation, the RAAS system. Um, and so ACE2 expression, high levels of ACE2 expression are associated with better outcomes post nasty lung and heart injuries. And we seem to see that recapitulated in patients. Older patients tend to have actually lower levels of ACE2 expression in the cells and lungs and tend to have a worse outcome in part because it does appear to be particularly integral in terms of, oh, that conversion that it's doing to something in your blood. Um, Okay, we have we have. You're you're breaking up. Doubt that. Uh, you're 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 breaking up. Uh, and Henry, do you want to respond to that? And we'll get no, to the three I, questions. No, I think that he, he he actually covered that one. I think quite well. If anybody else doesn't understand the role of ACE two in in COVID infections, uh, basically that's just the point that the virus is invading at, or it's the receptor that the virus is targeting. So it's that's the honey it. to the bee. Or it's the pollen to the bee. Yeah. Okay. And now they're telling us to go outside. I was reading, you know, uh, the, the way to defeat COVID-19 is to get out there and exercise and get off your ass. So good luck uh, investing in, 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 in a treatment. Vince, let's go to Vince, who I believed is, I don't know, where are you Zooming from, Vince? Uh, Florida. From Florida. Yes. Uh, it's not really a question, but, uh, uh, I do my daily, uh, kind of COVID, uh, updates with, uh, Dr. Uh, John Campbell from, uh, Britain. Uh, I highly recommend watching him every day. He, he really does a good job. Um, but I had an original question. He, he pushes, uh, uh, vitamin D a lot. I don't know if you've heard from the British. So did Irritable. That was the first thing Irritable told me to he's take. Got, he's got, oh, really? Okay, I didn't know Irritable, that. are you there? Okay, I thought I was going to get a lot of pushback. I was just like, I, I, I'm out of my realm. I'm just Irritable, like, are you there? Yeah, I mean, I'm still here. I mean, it's, it's certainly possible to take too much vitamin D, but you really have to try. So I if did. you're going to take a, a supplement that's, you know, potentially immunomodulatory. Vitamin D, vitamin D is probably a good one, particularly for respiratory viruses. Oh, cool. That's that's great. And to hear. zinc. Great and zinc. You, he irritable. You recommended zinc, right? I mean, I, I suggest that zinc reduce the duration of symptoms in common cold type viruses. I believe, which it has been shown to do to some degree. There's a lot of people who seem to think that zinc is some sort of magic fucking bullet for this virus. It's not. Absolutely not. It might help. There's going to be very little downside to taking a small amount of zinc. What okay, about smoking uh, cigarettes? Uh, I, Does smoking cigarettes I, help? <laughs> I have. Okay. I'm going to. Uh, thank you, Vince. Great question. Does smoking cigarettes help in the in the 
fight against COVID-19? And that's a serious question. They have discovered that. I just have one more question. Oh, you haven't. Who am I unmuting? Hang on. Let me. Oh, it's Vince. Okay. Hang on. Okay. Hang on for one second. Let me ask Henry or Irritable. They say one of the reasons China's death rate is so low is due to the smoking. Have you heard that? It was in the it was in the Economist. It was in the Economist. There's a lot of things that are in the Economist that are hard to believe, David. (laughs) Okay, the listeners at home can't see the smug look on my face right now. That's one of the the benefits to attending one of these uh, meetings via Zoom or telephone. Well, you can't see it on telephone, but I have a very smug look right now that you just want to punch. It's like I have a very punchable face right now. Vince, you had a... Uh, oh, you, got, you, got the, you, you got the Kushner face I on, got huh? the Kushner face. Uh, yes. Go, uh, are those crickets in the background? Have I told a joke? Uh, yes. <laughs> I hear crickets. Uh, no, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Campbell... Uh, today just mentioned, you know, he goes over different countries and their, their, the different, uh, you know, responses to the virus. And, uh, you know, maybe a month from now, it's, it'll be a different story. But right now, it seems like Thailand's doing a good job, uh, just culturally with wearing the masks and, uh, ventilating things. And so, in other words, it, the story was, uh, this is an easy virus to, uh, to conquer in one sense. No, you know? that's actually not true. That they, they, that's they, not? yeah, as I understand it, they, uh, young, everything that they think is true about the virus betrays itself in another culture. The, the well, fun- no, 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 he, he, he goes over like children coming down with it and it, it, it mutating, but just culturally, like, as a as a Brit, he's telling everybody that they should be wearing masks, they should be ventilating. Uh, you know, it's just these, these things that are very basic, uh, about, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Let's, uh, Vince, uh, I, you know, uh, I'm competitive with Campbell. I think we, I, I don't even know who he is, <laughs> but, uh, I just want you listening to my show. I feel like you've been cheating on me. <laughs> Haven't they discovered that cities like Bangkok, Baghdad and, uh, New Delhi and Lagos where people live on top of one another? They've been spared, or is that reporting? I mean, Baghdad is claiming they have almost no COVID nineteen cases, whereas Iran, they can't bury the bodies fast enough. Any truth to that? Is that alone? I mean, I I'm not sure of how good the testing regimens are in those countries specifically. There, there may be some reason to suggest that people living in high density, low income countries that have potentially reasonably exposure on a more regular basis to the standard seasonal coronaviruses. And yeah, you're break. You're breaking up. Damn it! Excellent. You're breaking up a little. We, we, and we're going to wrap it up in two seconds. Let's go to JS. JS, where are you Zooming or calling from? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. That's right. How are, th- um, how are things? Have you gone outside? Uh, yeah, actually. We've actually um, changed our state motto to um, Georgia. Um, 
Uh, it's great to live here, and we're willing to die for you. <laughs> okay. What is your question for ear? Did, did you get your nails done? Uh, I did. I got I got my nails done in my tattoo parlor. <laughs> They're actually doing a three for one tattoo. Nice. Uh, and I actually had uh, nails tattooed onto uh, onto my uh, tramp stamp, so it looks pretty good now. Uh, wow, that's classy, man! Yeah. Take a lesson, Feldman. Yeah, this I, is Georgia we're talking about here. So. Um, it, I, I guess my question really re- revolves around. Uh, the D614G mutation. Mm. Uh, you guys are probably that one. I know it hit the news recently as being of particular uh, interest and stuff. So um, I know it. Um, it's uh, PCR. It takes less PCR cycles to kind of um, uh, recognize that, which means it may have a, a higher viral load, and that seems to be the one that's kind of picking up steam. Do you guys um, know, and maybe more for the uh, irritable immunologists, um, is that the strain that we're focusing, uh, or is that the mutation that we're focusing all a, a lot of the virus research on, or are we still just doing general, um, vi- you know, or sorry, vaccine uh, research on, or... Um, is it spread out more broadly across multiple spike mutations? Okay. Um, And we'll start with that. Okay. Thank you. We're running out of time. So you want to handle that irritable or Henry, you want to answer that? Henry, you want to. Well, if I can get it started. Yeah, I'll I'll get it started because this is actually one of the, there's two pieces of bad news that I was going to bring up to irritable. So I guess this will be the one for this time and the other one will get saved for next time. Um, and that's the other so, piece of bad news that there's going to be a next time. Wow. Well, you have three pieces of bad news. Good news for me. I'm enjoying this. Okay. Uh, me too. Thank you for doing this, you guys. No problem, David. So just to get everybody up to speed that hasn't seen this, um, what was it JS? What JS was referring to yeah. was a, a new, uh, can't even say it, paper. It's a preprint. So it hasn't gone through peer review um, and it hasn't been published yet, but it's been put out on the internet to kind of speed up the dissemination of information um, that's showing that we've, and, and we've kind of known this for a while now, but what it's really showing is that we've switched from one strain of the virus to a different strain of the same virus. And when I'm saying there's a strain, there was a mutation at one specific point that we're focusing on here, which is in the spike protein and the spike protein. So you've seen pictures of, SARS-2 coronavirus, it's like a ball with little spikes coming out of that. The, the spike protein is the protein that's responsible for allowing it to enter our cells. The okay. spike protein is also the protein that we've been targeting our vaccine candidates towards because if we can, uh, well, basically what we're looking at is if we can target the, the spike protein, we'll be able to target the, the virus as a whole. Now with this mutation, it's been found that the, the strain that has this new mutation, which has overtaken the original strain now in terms of how many people have it, it's much more virulent in terms of uh, it's much more transmissible. People catch it much more frequently, and people have a higher viral load, as was mentioned. It's not necessarily more deadly, but it'll spread a lot faster. The biggest problem that we have with that is that it might really throw off some of the vaccine research that we have because most of the the vaccine candidates that are being 
worked on right now were working under the assumption that we were having that original spike protein. And now we have a mutation. So whether or not those can- those vaccine candidates would still be effective against it is up in the air. So uh, now I'll toss it over to uh, Irritable Immunologist for his thoughts now that I've got everybody kind of up to speed on that. Thank you. Yeah, I'd say I more or less agree with, with almost all of that. I would say that the, there's not an in vivo demonstration of increased transmissibility. They're inferring that from the fact that it does appear to be taking over populations relative to the strain that don't have this specific mutation. Right. Uh, whether this will alter vaccine design considerations, it assuredly will alter people looking at the spike. Uh, the, the issue is that this is, this is a, a mutation that's happening I've talked about this a bunch. RNA viruses mutate all the time. Coronaviruses less so than others in their group, but they still mutate. The critical bit here is that this is a, a amino acid substitution in the core section of the spike that, that mediates the binding between the ACE2 receptor and the spike. So this is in what's called the RBD, the receptor binding domain. It's smack dab right in there. And not only is it an amino acid substitution, it's a substitution from aspartic acid to glycine. And what that means is that this is a substantial chemical change at this amino acid residue. Instead of having an acidic polar amino acid, you now have a largely non-polar amino acid, and it appears to spread better. So this almost certainly is an example of the virus adapting to a new host. This is a zoonotic. This came over from bats. And so we have this single amino acid substitution that at least appears to in- increase its ability to spread rapidly, to infect large numbers of people. And, and as a caller mentioned, Henry mentioned, if you take controlled doses of this version of the virus, and the original version, and you dose them into the the cells at the same time, this new virus will reproduce more rapidly in in a very controlled circumstance. You know, I I want you to come back. I'm honored that you two have, have done this, and I'm honored by the number of attendees who showed up. But you won't come back if I let this drag on and on. So let's take our last question from Invisible Ninja, it's great to see you again, Invisible. I'm going to keep doing that joke. It's great to see you, Invisible. Oh, man. Glad to be here. I, I can't turn on my video. Why can't I do that? That's okay. You're invisible. Well, I know. That's what I wanted to show you. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> hey, um, well, I had a, I have a few questions, but I'll keep it kind of quick here. Um, I originally wanted to ask about the, the potential of the virus affecting the red blood cells. Um, the initially you were talking about malaria and like maybe like thalassemia and some of these other forms of anemia in which that red blood cell is protecting it from malaria. So I'm wondering if this virus is attacking those red blood cells similar to some of these other things. And maybe that's what's causing that genetic mutation in some of these groups of people to be more protected. Okay, that's it. That's I, I know that's that Harvard, I know there's something in Harvard and John Hopkins, they just released something a couple of weeks ago talking about this effect on the red blood cells. I just haven't looked into a whole lot of info after it. So I was just going to see what you guys thought on that. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a cliffhanger. We're going to answer that question next week, Invisible, because we're out of time. And I have to be respectful of Henry and invisible, and I'm going to say this one more time. If I let this go too long, and it did go too long, 
you will not come back. But Henry and Invisible won't come. Uh, uh, irritable won't come back. And Invisible, you won't come back. You really will be invisible. I have to keep these things shorter. So I want to thank Henry Hakamaki. You are Woo! you are fantastic, and I met you through this show, and uh, you are you are just terrific. And I want to thank Irritable Immunologist, who's on the front lines. Who you met in prison. We covered this. I met in, in prison. We don't need Who's to go. Infinitely more funny than me, as well as uh, <laughs> a more of an expert in coronaviruses. Yeah, I met him in prison. It was a different type of viral load, but we were so. Um, yeah, that's for sure. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Uh, and irritable immunologist. I met you through the show. You wrote me an angry, angry letter. You contacted me and set me straight. And you told me this is the story of our time, and you are absolutely right. So thank you. I hope you will come back as well. I'm going to mute you f- for your sound. And I want to thank the people who attended today. Uh, it's truly amazing. I we didn't. I kind of hogged the conversation, but it's to be continued next week. I want to remind everybody that we have a Zoom party. Every Friday night at 9 Eastern, you're invited. It's office hours. I, it's turning more into uh, an after party for the listeners and the guests. And it's a lot of fun, and it's very edifying for me. I kind of figured out what, what, the, what after hours really is. It informs the, the show. It, it helps me figure out how to book the show and where to take it. So... I invite all my listeners to go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the After Hours button, and please sign up and join. You can join via phone, via Zoom. You can turn your video off. And we can, a lot of people make connections. I can hear the sirens. They're coming for me. Everybody, thank you so much. Please stay on the line.